Well, today we want to look at the throne room. This is the actual place that God gave a revelation of himself. And even as I try to say these words, it doesn't really make sense because God can't be in a place. He cannot be localized unless he comes down and makes himself visible in some manifestation that we could comprehend. And I'm sure, I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about. You cannot limit God. You can't draw a picture of him. He won't fit on the paper. The paper won't be big enough, okay? And so we try and try our best to really humbly before God worship him today. I want to tell you about a, a famous missionary story. And some of you know all about this, and maybe there's some of you that have never heard this. But uh, going back to the 1950s, there was a people group that at that time were known as the Aka Indians. And for years, the so-called Aka Indians they weren't Aka and they weren't Indians, but um, that's what they were called at that time. They're known as the Udani people, sometimes pronounced the Hurani people. But we're going to call them the Wadani. They were people of the rainforest of Ecuador who were considered unreachable by Bible-believing mission boards. <clears throat> there were other outsiders in that area, for instance, the Shell Oil Company had dealings there and drilling and so on and had employees that <clears throat> lived and worked in the area near where this people group kind of hid away back in the rainforest. They were hard to find. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to have any contact with anybody. They were considered extremely dangerous. They were nomadic hunter-gatherers that kept to themselves. And so they didn't wish to be bothered by any other tribes or any groups. They wanted to be left alone. And in the 1950s, no white people had ever made personal contact with the so-called Aukas or their more real name, the Wudani. There was no record of anybody having contact with them. It was in 1955 that five young men and their wives decided to move to Ecuador and attempt to reach these people that they had heard about. Their names were Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCauley. Five young men, still in their 20s, and they had wives, and they took their wives with them, so their wives went with them to move to this place, Ecuador, which was uh, very primitive. You can imagine the, the typical picture of living in a hut in an extremely desolate place. Their tremendous efforts of planning and their incremental steps of approaching those isolated people is documented in Elizabeth Elliot's 1957 book, through Gates of Splendor. Have you ever read it? How many have read it? Okay, so many of you have read it. I tell you, that was a life-changing book. 
I'm going to have a hard time talking about this because it moves me so much. And there's a side story to this that I'm, I'm not going to share today, but I will tell you this. When I was in seminary and I was packing groceries as my job during the day and I'd go to seminary from there, I had this friend named Tom Job. He was from Tennessee. He spoke a different kind of English. <laughs> I could not figure out what he was saying half the time. And I had him repeat and repeat. Even when he told me his name, it sounded to me like Tom Jelb or something like that. And I said, well, could you say it again? Well, Tom Jelb. And I, I was like, well, how do you spell it? J-O-B. And I said, oh, Job. Yeah. I said, that's a good Bible name. He said, it's better than 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and I, I thought, this guy, there's something about him I don't know. But I spent time with him, and he had a fire for the gospel. And he had a desire to reach people. And he and his wife took their kids after seminary and moved to Italy right outside the Vatican to try to plant a church. That's the kind of person he was. And he spent years there. And now he's a pastor in Tennessee after years of being, doing missions. But it was Tom that said, Dave, you've read this book, right? What book? Through Gates of Splendor. No, I don't, maybe I've heard of it. He looked at me in amazement. You haven't read this book? Kind of like, what planet are you from? Why are you in seminary then? You know, things like that. And I, and I was like, okay, I'll read it. Oh, it moved me. I mean, if you read that book, it is so moving. Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. That book explained their commitment to Christ. These men, led by Jim Elliot, had a desire to live for Christ no matter what it cost them. Jim Elliot wrote in his diary, this was one of his prayers, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork. A fork? Make me a fork, like a fork in the road that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Now this guy's in his 20s. He's writing this kind of stuff. Even as a youth, Eliot was committed. He said, here's another statement that he wrote, I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth until they were older. God is peopling eternity, and I must not restrict him to old men and women. Is that not a different way to think? You know, when someone dies young, I think, that's, that's a tragedy. They didn't live a long life. But he's saying, no, it's not a tragedy. And God knows what he's doing. Here's another one he wrote in his diary. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, that I may burn for thee, 
Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Now, he wasn't getting up in front and saying this kind of stuff. He's writing it in his diary. He had no idea that anybody was going to read this. Later on, a movie would be made entitled Torchlighters, The Jim Elliott Story. These men, along with their wives, worked for months to prepare for a face-to-face meeting with the Wudani. After they learned the language, they went through this spectacular thing of dropping gifts and messages via Nate Saint's airplane. They learned how to circle around in a circle and drop this big rope with a bucket on the end of it, and it took an incredible ability as a pilot to get it so that that thing would be hanging straight down while they were flying, and they would then release the gifts, and, and they kept doing this over and over and over for months, giving the people ideas that they wanted to be friendly. So they learned the language, they spent all this time, they had watched them and seen them across the river, and waved to them and smiled and tried to give sign language and things like that. Finally, on January 8th, 1956, they made, this was the day, we're going to cross the river and we're going to meet these people. And they saw them over there. And so they did. Initially, it looked like it was going to be a friendly contact. However, suddenly, the Wudani turned on them and speared all five men to death and left their bodies floating in the river. The news hit the world. Life magazine did a full-blown story about the tragedy of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and their friends. The exact details were not known for many years later. However, Jim's wife Elizabeth and Nate's sister Rachel Saint continued with their mission. They went back and they met those people and they led them to the Lord. And there is a church as a result. Later on, Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, grew up to reach more of the same people group and many others, and eventually he actually met the man who, who killed his father. And they too, Steve and Minkaya, have traveled around the world telling the story, and they made a movie about that called End of the Spear. So this raises the question, right? I mean, there's got to be a question here. Was this... A senseless killing of five missionary men? Was this a tragedy? That's what the world said. They were warned. They knew it was dangerous. They shouldn't have done that. Now they're dead. They left their wives, and some of them had little babies. Looked like a tragedy to the world. But we have to ask, what does God think about this? And although we can't say for sure God's words on this, We do know this. They gave their all for Christ. I mean, Jim Elliott was 29 years old when he died. 
But as a result, countless lives have been changed. Like Tom Job. And me. Lives have been changed from eternal death to eternal life. And so down through the ages, God has been asking this question, who will go? And he asked the question through Isaiah. It's a passage like this that fueled Jim Elliott's desire to know his God and to serve him and to give his life in service. And and so here we are, we're gathered today for worship. And we're looking at the text. It'd be very easy for us to read this analyze it, take all the words apart, put them back together and say this is what it means and then go our merry way. But is that what God wants us to do? At some point, we've got to come face to face with why am I here on this earth and what difference does my life make? Right? And that's what God wants us to face up to. We're going to look at this throne room in just a moment. And there's not much about it. There's very few details. Very frustrating for me. Very, very frustrating. I think God likes that. He likes us to be a little frustrated and and want to know more. But I want you to get this, and here's my message. When you are confronted with the vision of God's throne room, you must answer the call who will go. That's my message. If you really allow yourself to be confronted with God's throne room, which is seemingly a real place, at least it's a manifestation that God has given, which is not on earth, it's somewhere else where God is. And he gave Isaiah this vision. When you come to the confrontation of the vision of God's throne room, you must answer the call Who will go? What does it mean to go? It means to be willing. And it could be going across the ocean or to another continent like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those guys did. It could be crossing the street or going to the next door neighbor. We don't know what God has called each one of us to do. The question is, who will go? And so this is where I want to kind of break down this passage. My outline, number one, confrontation with the Holy Lord of hosts. Secondly, cleansing of the man of unclean lips. And thirdly, the commissioning of the willing servant. Now let's take a moment and look at this confrontation with the Holy Lord of hosts. This is really interesting how Isaiah has written this book. Because look what, what he does here in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. I want to stop right there. Isaiah makes this announcement, but he doesn't make it in chapter 1. He makes it in chapter 6. And what he's saying here in chapter 6 is, this is how I was called to be a prophet. This is how I was called to be a minister minister for the Lord. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we just had five chapters of, of Isaiah's messages, but you see what he's doing in the book? He's not going chronological here. He started off with a thematic approach 
of getting a message across of what the message was going to be about. And now he goes back in time to the beginning of his ministry and he says, now I'm going to tell you about my calling. Now if you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about his call in chapter 1, right? But Isaiah waits till chapter 6. Isaiah says, I want to take you back for a moment to the vision that God gave me of his heavenly throne. He says, it was the year the king Uzziah died. And so we know that was the year 740-739 B.C. We know that from history, piecing stuff together to figure out how many years before Christ and so on. This was the year that King Uzziah died after suffering from leprosy, if you remember, for burning incense on the altar of incense, which only a priest was allowed to do. And Uzziah was not allowed to do that, but Isaiah got to see a vision of God's throne room. We're talking the Holy of Holies. Not the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. We're talking about the real Holy of Holies that the writer of Hebrews talks about, that he says the temple or the tabernacle is just like, um, you know, blueprints of. The real one's up in heaven. That's where God is. And yes, he manifests himself with the children of Israel in the Holy of Holies while they were gathered around the tabernacle and so on. And we've been studying that in the, in the Bible class. But Isaiah says, King Uzziah died, but the real king is on the throne. And I got to see it. How awesome is that? Doesn't this kind of remind you of when the Apostle Paul kind of teases us in uh, 2 Corinthians 12? I mean, that's got to be one of my favorite passages. Of course, I have about 50 favorite passages, but, but 2 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul says, I had a vision of a man. I don't know if he was in the body or out of the body, but I, he, he saw things that he can't talk about. Ha, ha, ha. I saw things, and I can't tell you. Maybe he couldn't tell it because he couldn't put it into words. Do you notice how hard Isaiah is having putting this into words? He makes this announcement. It's the year the king died. It's the year my commissioning came. It was the beginning of my ministry. And this is what I saw. And he says, I saw Adonai sitting on the throne. Notice it's Lord, capital L, small, lowercase o-r-d. That means Adonai, master. That's the word you use when you are submitting as a servant. He goes on to say, I heard from my master, and later he's going to hear his name, Yahweh Sabaoth, in verse 3. But he, he tries to explain this, and he says, he was sitting on a throne, and you know, I was really hoping maybe he could say, and his face looked like this. Or I could see his arms and his legs. But he didn't say that. Why? Because God doesn't have arms and legs, not unless he decides to make himself look that way except in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that way, the God-man. But this was, you know, pre-incarnation. Jesus hadn't come yet. 
He sees Adonai sitting on the throne, and he says the train of his robe fills the temple. In other words, he is everywhere. The words train of his robe means, it's literally the hem of his garment. Does that bring any reminder of anything? Weren't there some people that wanted to touch somebody's hem of their garment? Wasn't there a woman who was healed when she thought, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was, you know, immediately healed. You have to love that story. That's another one of my favorite stories where Jesus said, hey, the power went out. Who touched me? It's an amazing story. Isaiah says his train. So he says he's sitting, and he is, he, the hem of his garment is everywhere, and that's about all I'm going to tell you. I want to know more. What else did you see? Probably nothing, because didn't God say, nobody can see my face and live? He told Moses that. Moses said, oh, Lord, show me your glories. <laughs> I can't do that. You wouldn't be alive anymore. I'll, I'll tell you what. You can see the trail of my passing. I'm going to put you in a little cave. Remember? You love that passage? That's another one of my favorite passages, uh, uh, where he says, I'm going to pass by and you see my glory. It's so awesome to think about. So Isaiah does not further describe how the Lord looked. Probably because he either couldn't take it in, he couldn't find the words, or he wasn't even allowed to see more than what he saw. Remember, God always uses light and fire and smoke to demonstrate his presence as kind of a a way to come down to us so we can see something. I was meditating about God's attributes, though. You know, we don't get to, to know too much more here just yet. But um, you think about God's attributes for a moment. Have you studied them? We don't have time to study them today. I've got all the verses in front of me, but I just want... We're not going to look these up, but just listen to this. God is incomparable, 2 Samuel 7, 22. He's invisible, John 1, 18. He's inscrutable, Isaiah 40, 28. He's unchangeable, Numbers 23, 19. He's unequaled, Isaiah 40, 13 to 25. He's unsearchable, Romans 11, 33 to 34. He's infinite, 1 Kings 8, 27. He's eternal, Isaiah 57:15. He's omnipotent. Jeremiah 32:17 and 27. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139:7-12. He's omniscient. 1 John 3:20. By the way, while I was eating my cereal today, God answered my prayer. I had a kind of a silly little thing happen yesterday, but we were doing some cleaning and Diane has this little knick-knack box type thing it's real pretty and she put stuff in there and we took it down and and when we were putting it back up the little pin in the door fell out i mean we're talking a thing that's like a needle and it's about an inch and a half and now the door won't work and it, and we can't put it back on the wall and i'm looking well where did we set it down where where could this thing have gone and i searched everywhere we backtracked our space and Finally, we went and got a, a straight 
long pin that Diana had, and I stuck that in there, and okay, the door's on there. It doesn't look that great, but the door's on there, okay? But you know, I said to Diana, you know, God knows everything. He knows where that little pin is. So I prayed, Lord, I know this is kind of silly, but I'd like that little pin back, and uh, I know you know where it is, and, and so if you could just show me, I'd appreciate it. You ever pray a prayer like that? Do you know that God cares about little things in your life? And he waits until you pray? Well, I didn't find it. So I thought, well, the Lord knows. So today I'm eating my cereal, and Diana has this nice tablecloth on there that has all these figures and colors and stuff. And, and right next to my cereal bowl, there's a little gold pin that lined up with some design in the thing that we couldn't see it. I'm looking, I'm going, ah, God does know everything, doesn't he? And he answers prayer. And he gave me another illustration for my sermon. You know, that's what I was thinking. Like, I got it. I, I called to Diana. I, I found it. Isn't that silly? Maybe. But you know, God knows everything. But that's not all of Isaiah's vision. Notice what he says in verse 2. <clears throat> Above him stood the seraphim. Probably we should pronounce it seraphim, because I am is that sound in Hebrew. The seraphim, and it's plural. So one would be a seraph, and two is seraphim. But he says, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What an interesting thing. The word seraphim, seraphim, plural, means burning ones. It's not used in the Bible very often. This is the only time it's talked about for this context. The only other time it's mentioned is about the burning snakes of Numbers 21.6. But these angelic beings in the context, they're obviously angelic beings because they're described further with their angels and what they're doing and what they're saying. These special angels attend the throne of God. And there's at least two of them, because two are, at least two are mentioned, but maybe there's many of them that doesn't say. And then we have to wonder, now what's this about three sets of wings and covering the face and covering the feet and flying? What's the significance? And we kind of have to maybe speculate, and that's a dangerous thing to do. But, you know, guarding their eyes, that must be because the glory of God is so great. And guarding their feet, maybe showing their humility and and selfless service, and the two to fly, perhaps, so that they can immediately obey the command of God. That's the best I could come up with, but, you know, we don't really know. What about the number six? You ever read anything about biblical numerology? Oh, you can really go off crazy about that, and, and be careful. But, you know, six is the number of man. The Bible says that. Six wings, maybe they're somehow helping us to understand the greatness of God. I, I, I can't figure it out. What I do know is they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's how you say something beyond any other way of describing things in Hebrew. 
if you want to emphasize something or sometimes even speak about something in the plural, you say it twice, but to say it three times is just off the chart. And, and that's what they're doing. They're saying this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they just keep saying this again, repeating it, and again and again, kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. I just don't think our minds can catch this enough to catch the, uh, the aura of it. But notice what it says in verse 4. <clears throat> and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Well, who's the voice of him who called? <clears throat> well, the previous verse says it was one of the seraphim. And so when the angel, this angelic being, spoke with his voice about the holiness of God, the foundations of this room that is in the vision that Isaiah is having of God's throne room and the holiness of God, it shook the room and the whole room is filled with smoke. And it all, we already read how the train of his robe fills it. In other words, you cannot take in all that's there. It must have been awesome. It must have been frightening. And again, this, uh, this aura of God's throne reminds us again of his attributes. You know, I was sharing the attributes of his nature a moment ago, but there's also the attributes, uh, his moral attributes, some of which he shares with us. For instance, his goodness in Psalm 31.9. Did you know that God has hatred as one of his moral attributes in Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. Holiness is mentioned in Revelation 4, 8. Impartiality in 1 Peter 1, 17. Justice in Psalm 89, 14. Long-suffering in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. His love, 1 John 4, 8 and 16. His mercy, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. His faithfulness, Psalm 117, 2. His vengeance, Psalm 32, 40, 34 to 41. And his wrath, Deuteronomy 32, 22. And that doesn't, that's just a short list. Why do I throw all that at you? I know you can't possibly write all that down. My mind can't take it in, and I've got it in front of me. But it's all to help us to realize there's so many facets to the nature of God and who He is and how He's worthy of our worship. And, and we need to study and know Him in more deeper ways. Isaiah had a confrontation with the Holy Lord of hosts. But notice what happens next. Verse 5. And I said... Woe is me, for I am lost. Now, could we stop right there and think of the context of this passage for a moment? Does anybody remember the last chapter? What was the chapter previous to chapter 6? Well, it was chapter 5. And what happened in chapter 5? There were six somethings. Six woes. You remembered? There's six woes, six warnings of what God is going to do. And we suddenly move into this vision of the throne of God. And what does Isaiah say 
after pronouncing six woes, woe is me. Just as the judgment that's going to come on unbelieving Israel, all of a sudden Isaiah says, oh my word, I am undone. I am helpless. I am lost. I'm fearful for my soul. I don't, I don't know what to say. You see, this is the natural response of a mortal human in the presence of Yahweh. Isaiah recognized that he was a man of unclean lips and he needed to be cleansed. What does this mean that Isaiah was a man of unclean lips? He says here, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Did Isaiah personally have a problem with his language? Was that what he meant? Was this some personal sin that he had that no one else had? No. He said, I, by my lips, is proof that I'm unworthy. But I live among people who are just like me. And by the way, just like you and me. To be someone of unclean lips simply means someone who is a sinner. Someone who's lost apart from Christ. Unclean lips reveal the deeper impurity of the heart. Turn over, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. It's, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 37, Jesus speaking. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Oh, this slays me. Every word? Every word that's not confessed. Remember 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The problem is, we don't always confess. And we allow sin to pile up in the closets of our life and don't deal with it. While we're in Matthew 12, why don't we turn over to Matthew 13? Because here, he quotes from the, our very text. In Matthew 13, look at verse 14, if you would. <clears throat> indeed, in the case of the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. That very text is right out of our passage in Isaiah 6. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment. But while we were there, I wanted you to see it. But going back to Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. My sin is re very real before me. And what happens in Isaiah 6.6 6 is that in the vision, 
Isaiah receives a cleansing. Very unusual, very strange, but very real. Notice what happens. I'm back in Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the seraphim, how many were there? Not sure. There were at least two. Maybe there were many. But it says this, this seraph flew to him with a burning coal from off the altar. And again, remember, this is a vision. Isaiah's having a vision. Is this reality? We have trouble separating what God is doing. But the symbol here is of the atonement. Perhaps not the actual method of atonement, but in a very um, object lesson kind of a way, in the vision, Isaiah's very lips are cleansed from the altar. By the way, which altar would that be? We could speculate. We might think of uh, the incense, altar of incense, because prayers are offered up. But you know, it's more likely that it would be the altar, the bronze altar, the altar of the burnt offering. You know, in the book of Leviticus, it says that the fire never goes out in the burnt offering. They're never to let the fire go out. It never goes out. An altar that the fire is always burning. There's coals there always. It never goes out. Leviticus 6, 12 and 13. All of this is noteworthy of the atonement. Isaiah realized he received in this vision that God was enough and that the sacrifice of the altar that represents the sacrifice of Jesus was enough to cleanse his sin and to make him commissioned for his ministry. Jesus was our altar and the sacrifice on the altar. It's kind of interesting. Jesus is the altar, he's the priest, and the sacrifice all rolled into one to take care of our sin problem. And so Isaiah is cleansed. He receives the atonement that only God could give in this very unusual and symbolic way. But notice this last part of chapter 6 of Isaiah, his commissioning. And two very interesting things happens. First of all, he's ordained to do a job, but then he is also challenged to see what that job entails. There's the ordination of the prophet's commission and then the outcome of the prophet's commission. The ordination is here in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord, Adonai, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I, by the way, I wonder how loud that was. You know, if the voice of the seraph shook the foundations of the throne room, what did God's voice sound like? I can only try to imagine, but he says, I heard this voice. It was the voice of Adonai. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I love how the King James puts it. Then said I, here am I, send me. So beautiful words, so moving. Have you said that to the Lord? Have you ever said, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing. 
For me, that happened in the summer of 1972 up at Camp Patmos in front of 300 campers. They had more campers that week than they had beds. And it was a very moving time for me. I, was, I just finished ninth grade, and I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I've told you that many times. But I got up in front of those 300 kids when an invitation was given, and I said, Lord, I will do it, what you want me to do. And from that moment, I knew that I would be a pastor. And I started telling people that's what I was going to do. But we don't all have the same kind of experiences. But what we do need to do is come to the place where we say, Lord, this is my life. It is yours. And you could snuff it out in a moment if you so choose. And it could be like Jim Elliott. It could be today. It could be when you're young or you're old or you're in between. But you say, Lord, it doesn't matter. He heard the voice of his master and he said, Then said I, here am I, send me. He was commissioned. But notice what is then told to him when he says, yes, I will go. This is what God says. Go and say to this people. Now, does this sound like what you would expect? This is what you're going to say. Here's your message. Everybody, I'm going to speak, but you're not going to understand a thing I say. You're going to look at me and you're going to have no idea what I'm talking about ever. You know, if the Lord had told me this, I would have thought, could I have a second choice? (laughs) Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Do you know that Jesus quotes this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it's quoted again in the book of Acts? Isaiah, by the way, is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament, except for Psalms. Isaiah. It's an amazing book. And Jesus took those words that I just read to you a moment ago from Matthew 13 to say, this is why I speak in parables. You know why I speak in parables? Because there's people that shake their fist at God and they they hear the initial message and they say, I don't want that. When you hear from God and you say, nope, I don't want to listen to that, you are in deep trouble. And that's when Jesus said, from now on I'm going to speak in parables, and only the ones who really want to hear are ever going to figure it out. All the rest of the people are going to go, nope, not me. You know, it's like, kind of like John chapter 6, which is another one of my favorite passages. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, and at the end, what does Jesus say? I want you to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And the people said, what? And they all left. All of them. Except the 12. And they probably thought about it. (laughs) They were like, what is going on? And Jesus said, what about you? Why didn't you leave? And Peter, you got to love him. You got to write for once. Where else would we go? You're the Christ. He didn't even know what he was talking about half the time. But he got it right. Jesus kept saying this. I'm I'm only the ones that want to know. I'm going to put it out there. And when people shake their fists, say, I don't want that. Okay. Only the ones who initially are moved are going to seek. 
Notice the end of this, and i got to quit. Verse 11. This is the outcome. And you've got to love Isaiah. Then I said, How long, O Lord? Don't you just love Isaiah for that? I mean, that's, I would be saying, Can I have second choice? No? Well then, if i got to do this one, uh, would today be long enough? How long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Now remember, we're talking 739 B.C. Judah is rolling in prosperity. And you look around and go, all this is going to be gone? All these people are going to go away? Doesn't look like it to me. That's how long you're going to do it. And by the time Isaiah was done, the northern kingdom would be carried away, and Judah was going down, down, down with each king. Even Hezekiah, who was a good king, made some bad choices. So Isaiah asked the question, How long, O Lord, how long must I endure this assignment, which means no one is going to listen to me? Do you know how hard it is to get up and give a message and nobody wants to hear it? The Lord gave a difficult and somewhat harsh answer until all the cities lie waste, till their houses have no people, till the land is desolate, until all the people are moved away. And do you notice also, this is interesting, the Lord removes people far away. He would always say, my people or his people, but here it just says, until people are gone. And the last verse, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The two trees that are mentioned are trees that when you cut them down, shoots will come out and they will renew themselves. Sometimes even from a root, those two types, the terebinth and oak, are very prominent in Israel, and they will renew themselves. Kind of like that shoot, the branch that we studied about a couple chapters back. Remember that? What he's saying here is there will be only a one-tenth of the people who will remain, and they will see the whole thing burned down. And you know, when the children of Israel finally did come back from the captivity after the 70 years was done, do you know that only about one out of ten came back? So what have we been saying? We went to the throne room, and what did we hear? We heard a message of, preach this message, but nobody's going to listen. Preach this message until everybody's gone. That's what we heard from the throne room? This is what we were saying. Isaiah had a confrontation with the Holy Lord of hosts, and when he saw him, he had to say, I will go. He had his unclean lips cleansed, and he was commissioned. I want to go to these principles from the prophet before we close. I want to give you something one more time. This is what I've been trying to get across in different ways, so see if any of this clicks. Number one, have you been confronted with the Lord of hosts? That is the same as saying, have you ever trusted Jesus? Because Jesus is Yahweh Sabaoth. 
He is Yahweh, the triune God, who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he is the God-man. And the Bible says, in, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. So, if you know the Lord Jesus, have you been cleansed? Do you know the answer? Yes, you have. If you know him, you've been cleansed, whether you know it or not. Do you realize how many Christians walk around with a dark cloud over their head? We want to drag our sins around. We want to beat ourselves. Oh, I'm no good. We are all people of unclean lips. Sometimes we act like in the Peanuts cartoon, like Pigpen, you know. I, I always had to be amused by him. He went around in a cloud of dust all the time. And we do that with our sins. Oh, look, at I, I'm so worthless. The Lord doesn't want to hear that. He wants to hear praise for what he's done in your life. Now, number three, if you've been confronted with the claims of Christ, that he is very God, the sinless God-man, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, never to die again, he lives to offer this gift of eternal life to all who will believe. And if you simply receive this gift, you'll live forever and all believers in glory. And so, again, it's a simple question, but do you believe it? Have you been to the throne room and heard the message and responded? Or are you one of the ones that says, la, 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 I don't want to hear this? It's possible you could be here today thinking that. Number four, we are saved to serve. Jim Elliott said, Lord, here's my life. Like a pile of sticks, set it on fire for you. Man, I want to be that. If you're truly saved, he's calling you to obedience, to live for him, to be his witness, to serve him. To be commissioned means to simply say, Lord, I am willing. Where, he, by the way, he wants you to serve where you are, not where you're not. You know, have you noticed that? Well, Lord, I'll serve you, but just show me where I'm supposed to go. No, right where you are now. That's where you're supposed to do it. And if you need to move, he will move you. I'm going to close with this. Another statement by Jim Elliott, the most famous thing that he's ever said. And I hope you get this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You get that? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. That's your life. To gain what you cannot lose. That's eternal life. So the question is, who will go for Christ? Your answer will echo throughout eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's no way we could do justice to this passage. We've hit all around it and tried to put forth something for us to meditate on, but Lord, you are so awesome. You are so beyond our ability to comprehend. We bow and worship today. And oh Lord, that we would hear you say through the text of Scripture, who will go for me? and that we would all respond, Lord, here I am.
send me. If it means walking across the street today, help us to be willing 